Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Welcome to another edition of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I have my friend and mentor, Andrew Natsios, who has spent nearly 20 years working on pandemics in both as USAID administrator and now as director of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. I consider Andrew Natsios to be one of the foremost global experts on pandemics He's had a Cassandra-like sense of warning about the dangers of global pandemics for more than a decade. And he's run a very successful, very important global conference on pandemics for at least five years. Andrew, thanks so much for being with me on this podcast. Happy to do it, Dan. Well, and it's also great to hear your voice, and I'm glad you and your family are doing well, right? We are. We are. We're being very careful. So, Andrew, take me back 20 years when you were aid administrator. You became aid administrator in May of 2001, and you had to confront several pandemics while you were aid administrator from May of 2001 until, I believe, January of 2006 was your period of time at AID. Well, they weren't pandemics. They were epidemics. A pandemic would be uh, the whole world, and we didn't have that. We had a pandemic scare in 2005, when the scientists from NIH told President Bush 43 that there was going to be a repetition of the 2018 flu pandemic that killed 5% of the world's population in six months, depending on which estimate you look at, the upper end of one estimate is 100 million people died or 90 million people out of 1.7 billion. So it was quite, and and people, it was seared on people's memory. People, older people now still remember it. 650,000 people died in the United States during that. And, and he read a book, President Bush read a book for his summer reading. I think it was the summer of 2005. He read a book called The Great Influenza by John Barry, and he got quite alarmed by it. And he asked for a briefing by Tony Fauci at NIH, who's become quite famous since then, because John Barry at the end of the book said there's going to be a repetition of this, but it will be the flu. And President Bush made us all go, all the cabinet members and sub-cabinet, I was a sub-cabinet, you know, I was director of OF, USAID administrator, so I was sub-cabinet level, and we all had to go to NIH and listen to the president give a 45-minute talk on the science of the flu and pandemic, for the record, and then he proposed a $7.2 billion special uh, supplemental appropriation on pandemics. Congress, I don't remember exactly how much they gave us, two or three billion, and some of that came to AID, and we were told to try to spend it to prepare the developing world for what was about to happen. Well, it didn't happen until 2009 when President Obama was in office and Obama publicly said, I'm using the plans that were put in place by President Bush. So even though he did a lot of planning for the Bush presidency, it didn't come to be implemented until Obama. The difference is that the mortality rates were unusually low in 2009. 1.8 billion people got the flu in six months in 2009. And so there was a pandemic. It was horrendous in terms of the 
reach and the speed, six months, it swept the whole world. But the death rate was so low, no one remembers it. If it had a high death rate, it would have been much worse than 1918. And Andrew, talk about, there was also, was it H1N1 or avian flu? Were you around for that? The flus are referred to by different numbers and letters. H and N are all flu acronyms. So it's H1N1, I think was the 1918 pandemic, and then there's H5N9, and it depends. Each year, the reason they use these numbers is because the flu mutates. It's a very unstable virus, and it keeps changing, which is why we need a new flu shot every year. The flu shot from last year does not work in the next flu season because the, the virus keeps changing. They've been attempting to develop a vaccine that will kill or prevent you from getting sick from any flu virus, no matter how it mutates by. I don't understand all of the scientific detail of it, but it, it captures the virus at one part of the DNA of the virus that's common to all flu variations. But they have not been successful yet, and they've been trying for years to do that. We don't know how stable or unstable COVID-19 is. It appears to be certainly more stable than the flu is, but it, it's mutating, but not like the flu. So that's good, because if it mutates too much, then we can't develop a vaccine for it that will work by the time the, the vaccine is finished. Talk about your work at Texas A&M. I've attended at least two of your global conferences at Texas A&M on pandemics. Again, you were prophetic and in very successful conferences. They've grown every year. They've had an impact on American policy and global policy. Talk about what prompted you to start those conferences at Texas A&M and talk about how they've evolved over time. Well, when I read the John Barry's book while I was aid administrator, it was very, quite frightening. And I, the president bought copies, uh, boxes of the books, and all of us had to read it. <laughs> so I read it, and I said, now I understand why the president's so upset. There is a point at which the Surgeon General of the U.S. military, who is also the dean of the Michigan School of Medicine, which one of the four top schools of medicine in 1918, and he wrote in his own hand, we still have the note, at the peak of the outbreak, he said, if the rate of increase in mortality continues at the current rate, we could see the end of civilization within the next few weeks. Oh my word. And this guy was not someone who panicked easily. He was a very quiet, very contained scientist. He never used extreme rhetoric. He didn't exaggerate. He understated things. And he was terrified by the Reporting. Now, this is 1918. We didn't have the communication systems we have now. And science, medical science, was in its infancy then. The germ theory of disease had evolved in Germany in the 1840s and spread to the U.S. in the 1870s. But most of our medical schools were a joke. They didn't, were not teaching scientific medicine as we know it now. They were uh, not serious as medical schools. Only Johns Hopkins Medical School, the Rockefeller Institute, Michigan were the top medical schools in the country that had adopted the German model of medicine, which spread to France and UK when it did to the United States. So by 1918, we were just beginning to professionalize our medical schools. And we did not understand the scientific method well, but we did use it. That's how they discovered that this was a virus that was causing the flu. And they still didn't understand entirely what was, and we still don't even understand now, all of the factors that went into 
making the pandemic of 1918 what it was. So that book made a big impact on me. I've read it like three times since then. It, he, he, uh, John Barry is not a scientist, but he got a, an award from the National Academy of Science and Medicines. I think he's the only non-scientist to ever get the award. It's their top award because it's so well done. I've asked scientists, how well done is this from a scientific standpoint? And they said it's brilliantly researched, brilliantly written, and it's accurate. And what he did do is go around the world and just get newspaper reports from the newspapers of 1918 as to what they were seeing in their societies. And what they saw, interestingly enough, in 1918 is what we saw now in New York City, where the hospitals were completely overwhelmed, the streets were empty. Imagine the streets in New York City being completely empty of cars. That's what you saw in 1918 across the country. And so I became really interested in pandemics. I began to look into the Black Plague during the medieval period. And there are different estimates as to how many people died. But the more recent estimates that 60% of the population of Europe perished during the bubonic plague epidemics, which there wasn't one, there were a number, they're over a century and a half. And they didn't know what caused it. They didn't have any virus theory of disease. They had different theories as to what was causing it. It's caused human, massive human rights abuses. They believed the Jews were spreading it. And so there were pogroms to massacre the Jews uh, in Europe. Uh, and different ethnic groups, the minority groups were blamed for it. In 1918, uh, the year after, there were uh, the same thing went on, not against Jews, but other ethnic groups were blamed for spreading it because people didn't understand that, you know, what viruses were and they, didn't, they were not an educated population. So in 1918, we had the same repetition. I, I looked to see whether there's a lot of literature on the political consequences of pandemics. And there is several very good essays, but not a lot of research. Andrew, let me just stop a second on this issue of blaming the other or blaming minorities. That is an undercurrent of the current COVID-19 crisis. I, I was in the Philippines about eight weeks ago, and I was with a very senior American official who happens to be Asian American, and we both entered a very, very nice hotel. They let me walk through and they stopped him and took his temperature, which I was frankly very uncomfortable with that they sort of put him aside and kind of profiled him, if I can put it that way. There's a legitimate concern in my mind that there will be discrimination against Asians or Asian Americans because of the, the fact that COVID originated, it seems, in, in China. What's your reaction to that? Well, it did originate in China. I don't, there's no question about that. And we need to ask questions, which we will get to later on, about the Chinese government's role. But we should not extend that to the Chinese people. Some of the bravest people in the world, in my view, are the Chinese doctors and Chinese scientists who've been publishing stuff, which has been causing their arrest and interrogation, and I think worse. So we shouldn't do that. I have a friend who's a professor, a very celebrated political scientist at MIT, who happens to be a Japanese-American, but people don't know that. And his family's been here as long as my family, since 1905. <laughs> He's third or fourth generation. And he was on the T in Boston. We're not talking about you know, the backwaters of the United States. We're talking about Boston, Massachusetts, right? You know, I come from Massachusetts, as you know. When this started, he would get on the T and everybody on the T would move to the other side That's of the horrible. car. And they'd say, are you Chinese? And he said, well, maybe. I mean, he didn't want to say I'm Japanese American. I've been here longer than you have. <laughs> he didn't want to feed into that bigotry. So it is, it's very troubling to me. We haven't had any violence, thank heaven. 
And we need to make sure no one starts typecasting Asian Americans or Chinese Americans specifically because they're not responsible for this. I think there are serious institutional problems in the Chinese government we can talk about, but don't blame any ethnic group for this. I think it's very important that our political leaders speak out on that. And I think that's a very disturbing story. I'm not I'm sadly not surprised. Okay, so, Andrew, I have found your conferences to be really important. They've gotten very high level attention. So you read this book, you've been concerned about it, and that's what prompted you to start pulling these conferences together. Talk about some of the the accomplishments you've had at Texas A&M. You've brought the whole university together, veterinary science, medical school, the, the Bush School, the Skullcroft Institute organizes it. You've had Texas government, both local and state government. You've had national government, American government. Talk a little bit about it, because it's been very, very interesting. So we brought in officials from around the world. Dr. Tamori, for example, has been to several of our conferences. I think he's the former deputy director of the Nigerian CDC. He's a brilliant scientist from Africa. And he's become a good friend of mine. I rely on him for advice. We had senior Chinese come actually three years ago to talk about some of their challenges in dealing with some of the animal pandemics among domesticated animals and their effort to call, for example, they just got over a African swine fever pandemic. They had to cull 50% of their pigs, which is their primary source of protein. That caused an increase in pork prices of 120%. That's really quite a shock to their markets. So we bring in people from around the world. David Nabarro is one of the senior people in the UN system, was a keynote speaker one year. Uh, Bob Cadillac, who you've seen testify before Congress, he's in charge of pandemic preparedness at HHS. He's a a scientist. John Barry spoke at the first conference, the author of the book, The Great Pandemic. We had Michael Osterholm, who's one of the most celebrated figures uh, in dealing with pandemics in the world. He teaches at and runs an institute at the University of Minnesota. We bring policymakers, scholars, scientists, NGOs, international organizations together. The first year, we, we were questioning whether to have it in Texas A&M because we're, you know, a little bit distant from here. We're 90 miles north of I, I went to that one. I had a great time. It was a great conference. Well, one of the other heads of a U.S. government agency, I won't mention which one, came up to me and said to a rival who was the head of another agency. And the guy said to me, I can't believe she's saying what she's saying. She would never say these things in Washington. And someone, I said, well, why don't we move just to Washington? They said, no, don't move it to Washington because people will be afraid to say, they would never say these things in Washington. Even though you're guaranteeing Chatham House rules, they wouldn't say them here. So this, we feel safe to talk openly because of political controversy. You know, one year we had an NBC reporter not check in and came in. Now she respected the rule of Chatham House rule where you can use the information, but you cannot quote any individual personally. She did respect that rule, so we can have an open conversation. The first year we had 50 people. Last year, I think we had 150 people. There were two things I wanted to reference about you. The second year, I think in the 2005 legislation, one of the things that the Bush administration with bipartisan support in the Congress at that time set up was a series of, I'm going to call them surge capacity manufacturing for vaccines. And one of them happens to be near you. It's a mile from us. What is that? Well, there are three or four huge vaccine plants because President Bush said to the scientists when they talked about the likelihood of another pandemic, he said, so how fast can we produce vaccines? And they said, we can't. He said, what do you mean we can't? 
we can't vaccinate the whole country? He said, no, we don't have the all of the private capacity for producing vaccine. It doesn't exist. We can produce 20, 30 million doses. We can't produce 320 million at the time. And so he said, that's not acceptable. And President Obama said the same thing. So money got through in several supplemental appropriations. And BARDA, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services, has it's a public-private partnership. They've gotten private corporate money and public money. In the case of uh, our facility, it's got also state money in it. And these facilities were built. And our facility, you know, is a privately owned company. BARDA can come in and just confiscate it if they need to. So you could, and if, if they said, okay, we find a vaccine for COVID, they could turn the switch and how many vaccines could they make? When they we can produce this? 50 million doses within three months. That's just that one facility. Yes, and there are now three or four of them. Now, there are several big vaccine uh, pharmaceutical companies in Europe and the United States that are saying that they can produce 600 million vaccines. Now, I don't know whether they can or not, but we need them not just for the United States and Europe, but we need them for the rest of the world, too. And I have to say, I don't actually think that the defining event is going to be this pandemic. It's the next pandemic or the pandemic after it. You're, you're telling me this is like the warm-up? This is the this is horrible. Because the death rate here, the latest study from China is it's 0.66% mortality. Uh, Tony Fauci estimated 1%. If you look at the statistics in Italy, it was 7 or 8%. 7 8% would be catastrophic. The reason Italy's the second highest, or the highest mortality rates in the world is they have the second highest percentage in the world of people over 65. Only Japan has more elderly people than Italy. And so that's, since the older people are much more vulnerable to dying from this, Italy has much bigger figures. So you can't base it on one country. We think that the final rate will be between a half a percent and one percent, which is the the flu, the annual flu, is a one-tenth of one percent mortality rate. So even at the low end, this will be five times more deadly than the flu is. The big question is, how infectious is COVID-19? And we thought up until about two weeks ago that the the rate was 2.3. What does that mean? It means for every person who gets COVID-19, they will infect 2.3 on average more people. A new study came out from Stanford with a lot more data, and now they believe it's 5.7, which is a very high transmission rate. That's why it's so infectious and so dangerous. But the mortality rate is is high, but it's not like it was in 1918 yet, and it is not like Ebola. Ebola was 50 or 60% mortality. SARS which spread in 2003, had a 10% mortality rate. So the worst possible scenario is high transmission rate and a high mortality rate. We have a high transmission rate and we have a moderate level of mortality for this disease. So, Andrew, talk about what do you think are going to be the social and economic changes to our society as a result of COVID-19? Well, I think that's not what's being thought of. Is I mean, some people are thinking about it in Wall Street, and I've seen a lot of private business studies that are quite good, actually, on what they think is going to happen. Everybody's focusing on what Donald Trump says or does not say or what, got one, you know, what Andrew Cuomo says in New York. 
It doesn't really make any difference what they can announce that they're going to open up the economy all they want to. It's, it's dependent on us. I'm not going out to eat because of my age and uh, my wife's age and comorbidities, which is vulnerability to other diseases at our age, is high. So about a month ago, they took a poll and, and asked people, are you afraid of the pandemic? 43% of the American people said they were, cons they were afraid. 25% said they were really afraid, panicked. It's now 73%. So it's gone up from 43% to 73%. Until there's public confidence that this is under control, they can try to open up the economy all they want to, but a lot of businesses will still be unable to function because there won't be sufficient consumer demand. So that's one thing that's going to happen. I think a lot of people are now used to using Zoom instead of going to meetings. I'm not going to go on planes as much. And I think a lot of think tanks and universities are going to start using different electronic means of communication so that we will be traveling a lot less. And that means uh, huge changes to the airline industry. So I think there are a lot of changes that are dependent on consumer demand. And I do think there's going to be a lot more focus, as there should be, on pandemic preparedness. So we're prepared for the next pandemic up to a point, up to a point. Are you, when is your next annual conference on pandemics? I'm assuming it's going to be virtual. It probably will be. We're talking about that now. That will be, I believe it's early November. Yeah, I haven't mentioned this, Dan, but let me mention it. We produce annual white papers and we've done one, two, three, three or four of them. We're about to publish a new one and they're policy papers, but based on science. And we know they're reading them. I gave the first one to the President Trump's staff two months after he was inaugurated. And I said, you need to read this. And they did. And we found a year later, specific lines, sentences out of our white paper were in the executive order on pandemics that the president signed. They didn't have footnotes. And our, our young staff who wrote it said, you know, they didn't give us credit. I said, executive orders don't have footnotes in them. This is not a scholarly enterprise. It's a compliment to us that they read it and that they're putting sentences from what we wrote into the executive order. It means we're having an influence. Andrew, talk about, if I say to you, China and COVID-19, what's your reaction to those two phrases? I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories that this was a bioweapon. It was not a bioweapon. They can tell by looking at the RNA, because this is an RNA virus, not a DNA virus. This is a coronavirus. It's not the same category of viruses as influenza. And scientists can look at it and tell whether it's the wild form or whether it has been altered in any way. This virus, all of the samples that have been taken, there's no evidence that this was a manufactured or altered virus. This is a wild virus. I think the reason the Chinese are virtually obsessed with this is because so many of these viruses have originated in China over the last 20, 30 years, and they've had a history of pandemics. One, because they have a huge number of people. 1.4 billion people live there. And two, they have these wet markets, they're called, and they, they have a taste for exotic animals. And the live animals are kept in these wet markets. They want fresh food, and so the animals are kept alive. When they buy them, they slaughter them at home. And the problem is there are a lot of different species in these wet markets. There's a viral jump from one species to another and then to people, and that's where you start getting into trouble. When you have a 75% of all of the 
new viruses that have attacked people in the last 50 years are zoonotic. They're, they're animal diseases, mostly wild animals, but a number are from domesticated animals. The coronavirus is from the horseshoe bat, which is about 600 miles south. That's where their location is in caves, 600 miles south of Wuhan, where the epidemic was, which has led people to ask the question, well, if their bats are down there, not in Wuhan, how did they get to Wuhan? There is no sale of bats, because some people eat bats, for example, and I'm told in Africa they smoke bats and eat them, and they've got very sweet flesh, and they're a delicacy in some areas. That's true in Southeast Asia. It's true, in, I think, in, in China as well. And so the interesting thing is, well, why now? Well, the greater the population, the more, and population pressures, they move into areas that were wild before with no human habitation, and they're coming in contact with different species, and that's where this jump takes place. So as we move, you know, the population is growing still of the world. It's not growing what the UN had estimated. There would be 50 billion people at the end of the century. That's nonsense. Uh, it's down to, I think, 10.9 billion is the latest figure I saw. We have 7.7 .7 billion right now. We will grow more, and as we grow more, we're going to move into these other areas. Now, some kinds of animals adapt themselves to human cohabitation very well, like rats, for example. Rats are not threatened at all by us. They love living with people, okay? The other group of animals that love human habitation are bats, unfortunately. And bats are very useful. I mean, they control insect populations. They, they control the mosquito population. They eat mosquitoes on a large scale. I mean, without bats, we'd be completely overrun with mosquitoes. So... We need them, but they're also reservoirs for different kinds of viruses, particularly coronaviruses. And so what happened in China is some theories are that it was in a wet market. I believe it may have been an accidental release from one of their labs. They, the center of the study of viruses in China is in Wuhan. There is a BSL-4 lab, which is the highest level of containment lab, the highest security level, for research in Wuhan, it's about, I don't know, 20 minutes from the wet market. But there are two labs that are at level two, which are less secure. One of them is only two or 300 feet from the wet market. And so what could well have happened is they take bats to the, we know that the BSL-4 facility is researching uh, bats and the coronavirus because that's public knowledge. Scientists all over the world go there to study it. It may be that it wasn't BSL-4, but one of the other two labs that it escaped from, because the, Soviet, the Chinese scientists have been publishing articles saying they are very worried about the safety protocols not being followed in these facilities. We know that Xi Jinping apparently gave a secret talk that got leaked out, because he has enemies on the Politburo, uh, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and we know he gave a secret speech on on January 7th, saying we were about to have a major pandemic. And the question is why he waited so long to tell other people there are different theories as to what they're all theories. We don't know for sure why, but they did delay telling the world. Now, why are the Chinese so focused on these diseases? It's because the SARS pandemic in 2003 was traumatic for China and they're very worried about them. So for to protect their own populations, I don't think I have not seen evidence they're building bioweapons. They may be, but we have an evidence of that, and there's no evidence that this was caused by that. 
So if they were doing research, it was about protecting their own population because of the, of the, the trauma of SARS. Right. I believe that's the case. I could be proved wrong, but I believe that's the case. And scientists have said that, that that's the reason, the motivation. But Andrew, if you, if you said to me, so it sounds to me like there's several things that, if I can put it this way, that there are some things that where China is going to have to accept some blame. One is that they took too long to announce it. Two, they, didn't they put scientists in jail or repress information? Two things happened. A lot of things happened that were disturbing. One, I didn't finish the speech that Xi Jinping gave. He oh, also announced legislation that is on the fast track to go through the, whatever the equivalent of their Congress to put in place a law similar to, and he actually says it in his talk. He says this is very similar to the American legislation on pandemics and all natural hazards. And we need a framework piece of legislation to control us. And he said, we need more safety protocols and much more rigorous enforcement at our labs. He said it himself, secretly now, but it got leaked out. And it was in the South China Morning Post. This is not me making this up through some conspiracy theory. It's in the, one of the prominent newspapers in Hong Kong that he gave this talk. And the legislation has not been released. The text of it has not been released. But the fact that they've offered it has been discussed publicly now. It's in the media. What are the consequences for China of what's happened around the world with COVID-19? That's the other thing. Let me answer the question you asked before. Nine doctors in Wuhan discovered this in December, and they sent notes saying, you need to put on protective gear because people are getting this uh, new pneumonia from a, an unknown virus that may be related to SARS. And in fact, COVID-19 is related to SARS, but it's not the same. And one of them, ophthalmologist, they're arrested or detained. They were detained. The ophthalmologist had to recant what he said and apologize for spreading rumors. And he later died. Now, they say he died of COVID-19. I don't know if he died of COVID-19 or not. The thing that was even more disturbing is there's an institute of virology in Beijing, I believe, that released the RNA sequencing so scientists around the world can start experimenting on vaccines and drugs and doing research on this. They were told not to do that. They did it anyway. And the institute has now disappeared on their website. And we haven't heard from the scientists since mid-January or late January when it was done. So the Chinese government clearly is trying to control the narrative to push blame away from themselves for what happened. And the fact that they delayed this and they suppressed the scientific community in China, which is actually they're quite good scientists. There are a lot of very, very prominent Chinese scientists that are working on this and we rely on them because they're there. They can do research we cannot do on the origin of this. And there are Chinese, Chinese papers, by the way, scientists have published scientific papers saying this was an accidental release. They're, they're speculating, they don't have actual evidence. But the Chinese scientists have said this, and they've warned about lax enforcement of rules at these labs. By the way, these labs are spreading around the world. We've had accidents at our labs, and we have an obsession with accountability in the United States. There are a lot of other countries that do not have an obsession with accountability. They don't enforce their rules. And as a result, I think there's a high risk of accidental releases in the future. But Andrew, what does this mean? Is this going to be China's Chernobyl? They are doing more than Gorbachev could ever do to try to change the narrative by uh, sending teams to other countries. Many people in the, the journals are saying, oh, they turned it around. The economists are claiming they haven't turned it around. In my view, I think the economist is exaggerating. I think we can see the reaction in Africa. 
what happened in China is they started, they've had a second round of new infections in the Chinese government narrative. Oh, this is not from China. This is from foreigners coming in and reinfect everyone. Well, that's nonsense. That's not what's happening. The COVID-19 Chinese study that just came out two weeks ago shows that people are shedding the virus, which means they're highly infectious. 12 to 37 days after they get better so that people get better from the disease and uh, heal, they're still expelling the uh, or shedding the virus. That's the ter technical term for it, infecting other people. And that's what's happening. They shut down the social controls too quickly in China. And uh, the notion this is all coming from outside, in my view, it's nonsense. And so the Chinese government is attempting to control the narrative, but they can't. And the consequence is now, because this propaganda campaign against foreigners, is there are many African scientists working in China and technical people, and no one will allow them into restaurants, into hotels, into apartments. Many of them are in Guangzhou province. They're homeless and hungry because no one in the grocery, will allow them in grocery stores. 24 African ambassadors bitterly protested to the foreign ministry about the treatment of Africans within China, and it was all over the newspapers all over Africa. I don't think that's going to go over very well, no matter how much the Chinese government may try to control the narrative. The fact of the matter is their propaganda is counterproductive to them attempting to push away their responsibility for what's happened. Andrew, let's talk about the WHO. There's been a lot of attention to the WHO. What is your take on what the WHO should be doing and what kind of, I'm going to use the word in quotes, what kind of blame does the WHO have for this if they have quote unquote blame? I would not use blame. Let's, let's not get into blame. We're going to talk about their weaknesses, institutional weaknesses. We need WHO as a coordinating body for scientific research and for standard setting, and they do a good job at that. They are not operational. They've been trying to get operational, and they have not succeeded in my view. They've made, under Dr. Tedros, they've made some progress. They are not an operational agency, and they have a history of weakness in terms of their regional offices. Why is that? There was an organ is an organization called PAHO, Pan American Health Organization, which is the WHO of North and South America and Central America, the, the Western Hemisphere. It was created long before World War II, before the UN was created after World War II. WHO was created in uh, the late 40s, 1940s. And the only way Pan American Health Organization would join WHO is if they maintained autonomy. And so all the regional offices of WHO do not report to the director general, who right now is Dr. Tedros, the former health minister from Ethiopia. They report to the executive committee. In fact, they don't report to anyone. They are little feudal fiefdoms. So in West Africa, during the outbreak of Ebola in 2014, the West Africa office refused to announce there was a pandemic going on of Ebola because they thought it would hurt the economy. And the central headquarters in Geneva of WHO wanted to say something, and they said, no, we're in control here. We refuse to accept it. When I blew the whistle as the aid administrator on the atrocities in Darfur in 2004, the regional office of WHO in Egypt denounced uh, AID and me, said we made up the atrocities. There were only a few dozen deaths, and this is all uh, an invented war crimes that the United States has made up. They attacked WHO, they attacked me. 
And I, I was furious. I said, what are you talking about? The NGOs are out there, human rights groups are out there, and there is horrendous atrocities going on. 300,000 people died, in, according to a, a comprehensive scientific study by a Belgian Institute of Public Health, after the Darfur atrocities, 300,000 people died. The office in WHO in Egypt denied the whole thing. Why? Because they're controlled by the foreign ministry in Egypt, not the WHO headquarters. The same thing has happened, I think, with Dr. Tedros in the regional office in Asia. It's not under his control. And he didn't want to have a fight with them. And I'm just speculating now. So he went along with what the Chinese government was saying to WHO. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have made the statements he made, in my view. But that's a weakness of the governing structure. These regional offices, their autonomy must be eliminated. They must report directly to the director general. and The director general can fire them and transfer them whenever he needs to, which is what the case is for the World Food Program, UNICEF, UNHCR, which are very well-run UN agencies that are effective and operational and get stuff done on the ground. WHO is not. And we cannot rely on them to deal with these pandemics in the future, in my view. Andrew, just my last question, when is this all going to end? Well, I don't want to tell you this, Stan, but Mike Osterholm does a weekly podcast, and he is comparing this to the influenza outbreak of 1918, not in terms of the number of people dead, but in terms of the cycle. The pandemic of 1918 did not last one year, lasted three years, almost 36 months. This is not going to end by this summer. There will be different phases of this, and we'll have an outbreak again, and then we'll have another outbreak. There are actually three separate outbreaks of the same influenza after 2018. The first outbreak was not that deadly. It was the second outbreak that was really deadly in 1918. The big problem we have with this COVID-19 is at least a third of the people who are infected have no symptoms. They're asymptomatic, which means they're infecting other people and don't even know they're sick, which is why it spreads so quickly. There's a new study that came out from uh, the University of Hong Kong. This is a Chinese study now that says the 83,000 infection rate in China is just not the case. It's actually 235,000. So it's three times what the rate is that the Chinese government announced. 300% higher than what they announced. And there's a lot of people out there in China who have the disease who are still spreading it. They don't even know they're sick. That means that this is going to go on for some time. I don't think that we're going to get a vaccine in the amount of time they're saying 18 months. It's going to be longer than that. And even if we get it, we have to produce it. Then we have to get it out to all over the world. That will take a lot, much longer period of time. There is some question as to whether or not we can get a vaccine for this. The reason I say that is because the common cold is a coronavirus. They've been trying for years to develop a vaccine for it, and they have they failed. There is no vaccine for SARS. Now, the reason is, is that all the money dried up because SARS just disappeared one day. And so it could happen with COVID-19, but for us to to hope that it just disappears is delusional and very dangerous. It's not going to, I don't think it's just going to disappear. It could, but because we don't know a lot of stuff about this virus. There's, there's a lot we don't know about how this virus behaves. I think it's very likely we will have a two or three year period and it could be much more deadly the next time than it is this phase. 
But the solution could be different than what we guess it for it to be. It could be that we find a drug that works, and there are 120 different drugs that are already on the market for other diseases that are now being field tested with trials to see whether or not they are successful in stopping the disease from reproducing once you get it, if you take it early enough. There's also studies that just started of polio vaccine, poliomyelitis vaccine, because we know that one of the vaccines, there are several polio vaccines, one of them, apparently, we have empirical evidence that it kills four other diseases that have nothing to do with polio because of the nature of that vaccine. They think it could have a favorable effect on providing immunity, which may explain why very few children have been killed from this disease, because they're the ones who've had the most recent polio vaccines. You know, there's been a worldwide campaign to wipe out or eradicate polio. Some scientists are now saying, well, maybe the reason so few kids under nine have died is because they have the polio vaccine, which we know kills or prevents people from getting sick from a whole host of other diseases, from other scientific studies. So they're about to test. We could, we could find out it's the polio vaccine that would save us. But we, don't, we won't know that for a while. So the answer to your question is, I don't know when it's going to end, but I think it's not going to be in a few months. Andrew, thanks for your time. This has been tremendous. It's always great to speak with you. As my audience can see, you've spent a lot of time working on these issues, studying these issues, and putting forward solutions to this really intractable major problem. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for what you're doing at Texas A&M. And I'm so glad you're still leading on these issues from Texas A&M. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you very much, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 